This is the Mercersburg StoryCorps Making a Difference podcast. This episode is a conversation between me, Ellie Dronland, class of 2022, and Mr. Charles Coons, class of 1992. Charles graduated from Mercersburg and attended Rice University, where he graduated with a mechanical engineering and sociology degree. He held a few jobs, from marketing and business development to chief financial officer, after graduating from Rice and ended up as a strategy director at Orsted. In addition to his work in solar and environmental sustainability, he's also a cross-country coach and mentors young people. In the interview, you will hear Mr. Coons talk about his life at Mercersburg Academy and where he went from there. He also gives advice to high school students trying to get into college. Where are you from and where do you currently live now? I grew up in Bedford, Pennsylvania, which is about 46 miles from Mercersburg. So I know that road well. Um, I lived, went to college in Texas and then uh, bumped around the Midwest. And about six years ago, I moved to California for the, the climate, progressive politics, uh, sort of entrepreneurial spirit of the whole community. So I live in Santa Cruz, California now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, we were actually, um, my dad was going to move us out to California too for work and we never ended up going, but I always wondered what that would be like, would have enjoyed it. <laughs> um, okay, so how did you find out about Mercersburg? And could you talk a little bit about like what your experience was like? I know you said you lived close. Yeah, so my dad was Mercersburg class of 1964. And so, you know, I, we grew up in a very rural area, a town called the town of Bedford. And education just it wasn't a huge priority for the community. And I, I don't mean to... to but you know, it was more of a you know, uh, you know, type culture. So mm-hmm. it was there was almost an intellectual anti-education vein. You know, you went to high school because you had to, yeah. but the was to play on the football team or whatever. And so from a, from a very early age, it was always kind of assumed that I was going to be going to. My sister went before I did. She graduated in 1990. My little brother, I did, and he graduated in '95. All of us went through Mercersburg. Awesome. Yeah. My, my brother and sister actually went. Um, so it was kind of the same thing for me. It was just assumed I would go. I mean, as yeah. long as I got in. Um, so this is kind of a tough question, I guess. But how would you say you made a difference while you were at Mercersburg? I know um, we've talked about, uh, I think you were on the dining hall committee. You did volunteer work, a prefect. I don't know. You know, it's, it's always hard to think about making a difference, particularly at that age. Yeah. Um, I certainly, you know, I was... I was on school council and got to do that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed doing was writing for the newspaper and I was kind of sarcastic as a 16, 17 year old. So I was pretty fond of writing articles where I was poking fun at the administration, but almost polite kind of way. I look back at those articles now and I cringe. I'm like, Ew. but you know, like, I don't know. That was, that was it. I mean, I was captain of the, a JV soccer team for a while as captain of the wrestling team, but that wasn't really making a difference. That was just more being a part of the And I think at that, that's, that's what I was learning. I was learning how to be a part of a team, how to be a part of a community. Um, I would say maybe a little bit on how to lead, but probably not even so much because I wasn't a very good listener. So it's really hard to lead if you don't listen. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I was maybe building the skills and that laid a foundation um, awesome. for stuff to come later. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, so you wrote on the Mercersburg News. What do you remember? Any specific news articles you wrote, or what like your favorite topic was to write about? 
Well, my, my the favorite memory I have was um, I wrote an article about one of our what they were what they're called even like the whole school gets together and the headmaster speaks and and I wrote an article summarizing it. I talked about how he babbled on and on and you know I actually got called to the headmaster's office yeah. and he said you know when people refer it's almost always you know has a negative connotation mm. of the babbling idiot and I said what about a babbling brook and that was <laughs> so that was the only other use of babbling I could come up with to defend myself so I got off um, with you know you should be more polite it's kind of harsh to be and it's actually something that stuck with me like why say something unkind when you could have said something more insightful and you know I've tried to you know those lessons you know like I kind of stood by my guns at the time, but I think I learned a valuable lesson from Mr. Bergen that, you know, it didn't really accomplish anything. I may have amused my peers a little bit by taking a cheap shot at the headmaster, but it didn't make the world a better place. So. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's great to learn even back then. Um, yeah. So were there any um, any teachers or mentors you were close with at Mercersburg or um, anyone you anyone you can remember? Oh, gosh, I remember. It's probably safe to say that I remember all of my professors or mm-hmm. teachers. Um, you know, the ones, though, that really stuck by me were the ones that were kind and compassionate. You know, and this is like kind of, you know, old guy talk. But like, I remember there were some teachers that were harsh, um, you know, that in their way took cheap pot shots at, at me. Like, I remember one time I was in a class and I mispronounced a word that I knew the meaning of and the teacher ridiculed me. And yeah, sure. I pronounced the word bona fide. I think I pronounced it bona fide, which I think maybe was really a Latin word instead of a Latin word transported into English. Mm-hmm. But I had read and I heard, and you know, this teacher sort of mocked me in class, and I just remember that being super harsh, mm-hmm. and that created an impression. But teachers that I remember were the, the teachers like Brent Gift and Dave Holsworth, who went out of their way to understand and be kind and look after, yeah. you know. You know, truth be told, I was like a really young Mercersburg kid, like, and coming from a small town. And so the people who took the time to understand my background and, you know, Brent Gift grew up in Chambersburg. So he understood what it was like being a country boy coming to Mercersburg. And he took me out for walks along the rivers and in the woods and I got to help him with some of his research projects. And that, that was the meaningful stuff. It's not so much what I learned. But it's, you know, you people who are kind to you in a different way. So, yeah, super yeah. cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's something I've definitely taken from Mercersburg, too. Like, the community has been, and the teachers, too. Like, you can really find some people who are there for you, like you said, being kind. Um, so, I mean, I guess at Mercersburg, this is many high schoolers, myself included. No one really knows exactly what they want to do when they're in high school. But were there any... Um, moments that Mercersburg helped you discover your passions or um, anything to do with your career now? Oh, I think like a lot of people, I was probably drawn to you know, sort of science and engineering because it was easier for me. Yeah. Um, like, you know, where you have a facility, you, you tend to go with that. So I had, you know, I had, I had wonderful math and science teachers. I had wonderful English and you know history teachers, um, some of whom I recall very fondly. Um, but it always felt like that was really hard work. You know, like I was struggling against sort of a lack of native talent as a historian or a, a writer. Um, 
but I also valued that. So when I went to college, my thought was I need to take enough writing intensive classes to develop my communication skills, my presentation skills. What I about was sort of the technical part of life, you know, like sort of how does this work, the chemistry, the, the mm -hmm. physics of it. And, you know, I also had the benefit, like, you know, I think your father's in renewable energy as well, but I, my father is a lawyer or was a practice. And I saw that, you know, in his day-to-day -day life, he interacted with problems. Someone suing somebody else, um, someone having committed a crime or a transgression or breached a contract. And so his career for 35 plus years was interacting with problems, yeah. but in a problem, like in a litigious, disputative sort of way. And I decided that I just didn't like conflict that much. I would rather take more of the engineering and science approach where, okay, of a challenge like here's what I have here's the materials here's the budget how do I solve this problem yeah. so engineering always struck me as more of a problem resolution field you know like I need to create something that's light enough to get out of the atmosphere so you know I develop a rocket and special materials and it was always kind of the universe the bullet it's particularly when we get into the environmental issues it's the engineers and scientists that are paving the way to address our climate change problems you know, there's important work to be done on the policy and the legal side, mm -hmm. but the stuff that's fun to do is the solving of the technical problems. So that's, yeah. I don't know, it, I didn't really get any environmental awareness till well at Mercersburg. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always care about the environment, like pick up trash, you know, like don't yeah. dump toxic chemicals in your rivers, you know, don't change your motor oil on the driveway kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. like, I never really understood the, uh, the magnitude of the damage we're doing to our planet until you know the late 90s early 2000s mm -hmm. yeah and also my dad has said too like it's kind of become more relevant now than than it has been back then and like for me personally i've been influenced by my dad um i'm hoping to major in environmental biology or something like that i'm taking a class in mercersburg to hopefully uh help me figure out if that's really something i want to do so. so so i had a really cool opportunity you know, shoot in 2002 or three mm -hmm. to speak with the engineering scholars program at, at Ohio State University. And I was sitting there struggling to tell these guys, like, what do I, what, what do I have to share? And the advice that I came up with was, you know, the first one was like, I tried to connect with them. So like I shared like wh where I was, like what I like to do, mm -hmm. you know, and, but I also, I, I put a timeline up in my life and showed how happy I was at various intervals. It's kind of a fun, a fun exercise. You know, there's no, there's no units on the scale, but you just like, here's when I was happier. Here's when I was less happy. And the, the end of the advice was really just simply find something that you're passionate about and then figure out where on that problem. And like environment's a great pro question because, you know, there was important work being done by lawyers, by politicians, by biologists, by scientists, by data analytics people by artists, by teachers, communicate. So there's in almost every area of expertise, you can contribute to the problem. But my thought was find the problem that you care about because that's what will sustain you and then figure out how you can help. And it's not a question of where will you get paid, but like where do you bills to give? Mm -hmm. So if you're passionate in communicating, you could become, you know, like the next Al Gore where his contribution to environment was not engineering. It was communicating clearly that this is important. 
And then the third piece of advice, because I was talking to a bunch of 20 year olds, is build relationships with the older generation. Like build those bridges so that you have access to the levers of money and power and policy to make a difference. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the old people are always going to sit on the levers of power. And so, but build that. They, they want what you have, which is the ability to innovate, to work hard, to look at things through new perspective. So that was the best advice I could ever come up with. So Yeah, thank you so much. That means a lot to hear that. That, that really does. Um, where did you say you went to college again? I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas. Okay, so um, you, I think if I get this correctly, you graduated with a mechanical engineering and sociology degree? Yeah. yeah, and I think I, I think I teased that a little bit. Like the sociology was to practice sort of an understanding of the world in the context of society, okay. but it was more importantly a chance for me to practice writing and communicating, yeah. reading, studying critically. So you picked up a lot of the tools of like, you know, the social sciences, statistics, etc. Um, but I had to write essay after essay after essay, and it was really hard for me. Like I had, you know, a what we would call high honors GPA, at, you know, at Mercersburg in engineering science. And, mm-hmm. and I struggled to get B's in the writing classes because I was dealing with people for whom they're naturals. But if I look back at the decision, that effort to hone my writing and communicating skills probably has borne more fruit from a career perspective, you know, investing in up, upgrading my def- skills, Bit, but obviously, you know, I needed to make sure that I got the engineering stuff yeah. down cold as well. But that was easy. So I worked hard at sociology to get a B average. <laughs> but it, it benefited me a lot. So yeah, it's not always the right solution because I think you could burn yourself out trying to augment your your weaknesses. But to me, it was important. And that's what led to opportunities to influence, you know, take the engineering and in the direction that companies have gone because I could communicate more clearly than the average engineer yeah okay that's that's important yeah well and so and the other interesting thing is too is if with an engineering background like you can get into a business kind of setting Mm -hmm. and people will sometimes an engineer will sometimes try to for lack of a better word bs you like Mm -hmm. oh you know the the thermodynamics of that the stoichiometry of the equation you know (laughs) and if you have an engineering background you can cut through a lot of that bs pretty quickly so yeah i'm i got it i'm a mechanic here have a background in electrochemistry I'm not so sure I understand your point on the enthalpy of that equation, but let's carry on with the business. Mm -hmm. It cuts out a lot of the BS because people who have sort of a domain knowledge, you know, sort of special knowledge around something, they will have a tendency to try and quell a a candid discussion by going super technical. And I've had a lot of fun just over the years saying, you know, being able to cut through some of that and like, let's get back to the issue at hand. Don't mm-hmm. you know, don't dismiss the business concern because, oh, you don't understand the engineering. So that, yeah. that's been kind of fun, too, because I've actually not done a ton of real engineering, but mm-hmm. I've always had that, you know, that engineering BS detector. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny you say that. Um, so uh, the current company you work uh, you work at, could you um, like what's your what's your job there and what's um, what do you kind of do with them? Well, so. I work for a company called Ørsted, um, spelled O-R-S-T-E-D, and it's formerly the Danish oil and the natural gas 
Yeah, I did a little pub, bit of you know. research on that, yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting story because they're a company that decided, you know, with obviously a lot of policy backing from the state of the, uh, the country of Denmark, mm-hmm. that they were going to get out of the traditional fossil fuel business and get entirely into renewable energy. Yeah. So they took their expertise and drilling oil wells in the, in the North Sea, you know, a harsh marine environment. And they mm-hmm. said, well, we could use that expertise to build pedestal foundations for offshore wind turbines. So they got they took what they knew and then applied it in a new way to decarbonizing the world. And they subsequently, they've gone all in. They've, they're constantly selling off any of the traditional fossil type things mm. and in, in investing in the new economy. And we have as a company slogan that we always talk about, we want to bring about a world run entirely on renewable energy. Mm. So that's the background. It's kind of a cool story. And it actually gives us the ability to go in and talk to a refiner or a petrochemical company and say, we've been there, like, and we're not here to judge. We're here to help you on this path, right? I'm not saying like, hey, you, oh, well, so did we, but we're here to help bring about a transition that we think is more future proof. Mm -hmm. Sit within the strategy function, which is kind of a catch all. Um, We look at new technologies. We look at, you know, where's the next opportunity? Where is the danger on the horizon? and right now I'm particularly looking at how do we use hydrogen as a fuel to decarbonize the world. Um, we all know what hydrogen is, but people forget that, you know, one to 2% of global is used hydrogen because they use it to make diesel fuel. They use it to, you know, feed the world through, you know, making ammonia fertilizers, which is mostly hydrogen. So I'm looking at that pathway. It's still a few years out. But it's kind of fun because I get to dig into the newness of it and look yeah. at the electrochemistry and the energy, energy economics. And I get to talk to customers. I get to talk to refiners and ammonia producers about how this figures into their decarbonization efforts. So it's yeah. pretty, pretty cool work. That is cool. Yeah. From my research, that, that company, your company sounds awesome. Like, especially how you said you can, you can like connect with people based on the fact that yeah we've been there and now we're trying to change and you can too so yeah that's really cool yeah so another like a little piece of just sneak it in career advice is that ultimately working for great companies is is wonderful Mm -hmm. um if you're working for a bad it tends to lead to companies not doing well layoffs and stuff like that but what really leads to job satisfaction is working for a good manager one who's going to give you the support and the skills and the development you need and give you access to opportunities. Um, so at the end of the day, like, yes, it would be great to work for a great company, but if you have a terrible manager, you gotta, you gotta watch that. So when you go and take your first job or your first job after high school or college, mm-hmm. make sure you spend a lot of time thinking about who you're going to be working for okay. because a good manager is going to promote your career, help you in your skills, give you positive encouragement, constructive feedback on, where you need to improve. Yeah. Um, so just something to keep in mind that ultimately how successful you are and how much you enjoy your work is going to depend a lot more on who you're working for than the overall context. Cause there can be great careers inside bad companies mm-hmm. and there can be careers inside good companies. So make sure you, you balance that yin and yang. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so I think, okay, if I get this correct again, I think you, You've worked at a variety of different companies um, and now I think, are you the strategy director? Is that what it, what it says? Yeah, I think my, my title is director of strategy, but 
titles don't mean a whole lot. You know, it's at the end of the day, I report to another director who reports to a VP who reports to an SVP. And so, you know, I, this is a situation like where I, you know, when I was 30 or so, I was pretty, you know, I was a vice president at a big, you know, fortune five, fortune 100 company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the ability to have a big impact because I had an organization of 30 or 40 people working for me. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't doing as interesting work. It was a lot of budgeting, planning. Um, so I, when I left that job, I went and did some more, more cerebral work, the consulting, the thinking, but it was your ability to have an impact. You, you know, you're on the cutting edge of the thinking, but you don't command a big army, you know, like small, you, you know, high control, but low impact. Um, what I get now is I'm in a 6,000 person organization, but so I have, there's, there's a lot of potential impact because this organization is moving billions of dollars of capital into the renewable space. But my leverage is relatively smaller because I'm fairly, you know, I'm sort of in the middle ranks of the organization. Like, you know. So, you know, that's always the trade-off, right? Like, would you rather have like a, be able to nudge a big organization a little bit or be entirely in control of a very small organization? Yeah. So your past, uh, how have you been able to, you know, incorporate your past careers and your positions? I think, um, like, at one point you were chief financial officer, a few things like that. Have you been able to incorporate that into your being strategy director? Right. Um, uh, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, you always take like one part of what you and apply it. Um, so I think financial has always been helpful. Like you have to there's a part of me sometimes that thinks that, you know, the money is the grubby part of this, you know, like, yeah, it's just, but at the end of the day, you know, if we can come up with ways to make an environmental difference that are cost effective or earn good returns, we can make a bigger difference. Mm -hmm. So I, early on, I was kind of a little bit cynical about money. And now I realize that it's just an interesting way of allocating resources, you know, like economics is defined as the allocation of scarce resources. And so money is scarce. There's not as much as we all would wish. And so if I can find the best projects with the best returns, I can make a bigger environmental difference. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of evolved in my that. Um, so, I, you know, that's, I think that's, an, you know. So you, you take the different pieces. You know, I, I did some really fun work for the Department of Energy years ago, studying energy storage systems. And I got to interact with these really smart masters and PhD scientists who spend their whole lives trying to figure out to do one little thing better and what I took away from that is as one of my friends would never short engineers like engineers given enough time and money will solve a lot of these technical problems and that's that's interesting because you know it's a it's a bet on progress yeah but one, one of the things that you know you know tying back to a theme earlier is like the people who make a difference or the people who are kind and generous you know like the great boss is the one who looks to advance your career and help you on your way and a lot of that has led me to you know sort of be super involved with you know young people through high school and middle school coaching um, and it's part of what I've done in this recent chunk of my career is like I get up at at 5:30 and I work from 6 to 3 so that I can go hang out with a bunch of high school kids you know and run through the hills and along the beaches and stuff like that and it's super rewarding to be able to interact with people like that and you know I'd like to think that I'm making a difference in the environment by pushing you know hundreds of millions of dollars of capital into environmental projects but 
I also get to interact with 30 or 40 kids every year and talk to them about career and life and choices and you know the process of getting better at things and you know and even sometimes like we had an issue with some bullying on with the middle school team and mm-hmm. I got to interact with these kids and help them understand that you're not making the world a better place and how do we talk about that and how do we make space for people who are transgender or different like in a way it's like kind of like being a parent and you can talk to your parents about this but like yeah you make a difference at work but the real difference you're making is raising good responsible children and into young adults who you know at the end of the day we're going to pass the and yeah. yeah we may have messed some stuff up but maybe what we're investing in is giving you the skills that you so yeah not be again but like passing that torch to the next generation is a pretty important part of the job yeah so. yeah i'm glad you said that um i i actually had to do a family interview before this and i was interviewing my dad and i kind of asked him like just all encompassing how do you make a difference and he talked he talked about that too he's coached um my basketball team for years and he talked about that and being able to have an impact on kids middle school high school kids and also raising a family so i think yeah. that's a really big part of it like you said yep um, i checked out your dad's i checked out your dad's profile on linkedin i saw he was an aauw coach and i was oh, like yeah. yeah or aau coach whatever yeah so. <laughs> yeah i'm uh i played basketball since i was little you know part of what you get from that is you know you also get the connection with other people who share your your values your work you know who understand what you're going through and that's that's pretty awesome you know and you get that feeling of calm working on the same so, like those connections are pretty important too yeah exactly i'm just curious did you uh i know you mentioned playing a few sports at mercersburg did you continue those into college or or even now no no i you know um rice is a d1 school and i wasn't that good of an athlete um so. <laughs> i i understand my brother was the same way he played so many sports but never focused on one so yeah, well, I mean, and ultimately, like, I don't know that I would have had the time. Um, yeah. I mean, certainly if I'd have been given the opportunity, I probably would have been like, yay. Um, but I'm actually probably more athletic at 46 than I was at 18. <laughs> um, Mercersburg has really developed into a great um, study abroad program, travel program. Have you had any significant travel experiences throughout your career or just your personal life or... I, after Mercersburg, I was accepted to Rice and I deferred my admission for a year and went and lived in France as an exchange student through the Rotary. Um, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, I think it helped me develop a, you know, I think a lot of the choices I made at Rice were an outcropping of that, mm-hmm. particularly like the desire to study language and become a better communicator. Because I also took a year of college Russian, which it seems it seems odd now, but in 1997 you know there was this kind of who's going to be the next world power is it russia or china and guess what i chose the wrong one (laughs) because it's clear now but at the time russia was you know an energy powerhouse their economy was about the same size as china's but now russia kind of went and china's gone sort of but you know i i wanted to i wanted a global citizen and that was kind of neat for that um and then in my work context you know i've subsequently got some opportunities in my first college internships to do some work on oil and gas development in Russia. Never got to go there, but I got to, you know, under, you know, got to interact with that sort of economy. Um, I've 
traveled a little bit globally, but you know, the energy markets are very regulatory dependent. So they tend to be pretty domestic. Like the rules in Mexico are different than they are here. The rules of physics are the same, but the market tax rules, the subsidy rules. Yeah. Very, I call it pseudo knowledge. It's knowledge can be changed because some knowledge can't be changed, like the laws of physics, but the rules around interconnecting a power can change overnight. So, mm -hmm. so that, so I've mostly spent the time in the U S but now I'm with a global company. So I interact heavily with Europe and Asia and all that stuff. Yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah, that is neat. <laughs> okay. Next, this is, I feel like we're all getting tired of talking about this, but how would you say, um, has COVID made any difference on your, uh, your work, your career, even your personal life? And have you been able to find any silver linings through that? Keeping it positive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that, you know, major disruptions like this do is they precipitate. And I think the big thing that your generation is going to experience is that the openness to remote work. Yeah. So I think that's, that's probably the big change that will come of it for me though. And I suspect, you know, maybe not since you've been at Mercersburg for some of this time, but one of the big challenges is that for, I've got three children that are nine, 12 and 15 mm -hmm. and it's, it's a tough thing for them. You know, you, you, you're, you're probably 16 or 17. Yes. Like you want to be with your friends. You want to be out doing stuff. You want to be playing your sports mm -hmm. and all that stuff has been put to the side. And so I found that a big part of my job over the last nine months has been sort of providing emotional ballast and support to my family. Okay. And you only have so much of that to give. So that's been a challenge. I mean, truthfully, and yeah. the thing that I really like about the world we live in today is it's okay about how it's difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and professionals, other men in their forties are talking about how we're struggling emotionally. And that's a good thing because we destilled some of that stuff. And, you know, we can, you know, saying I'm having a bad day, this is just too much for me is acceptable in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago. And I think that's a good thing too. So a couple silver linings, but you know, at, at the end of the day, it's been hard. And it's been hard for me as a coach to see the 25 kids, you know, I got half a dozen seniors who did not get a senior season. And that's sad, you know, and how do you manage you? How do you cushion that blow for them? How do you create meaningful training goals? How do you, and what I'm finding too, is that they miss the, each other more than they miss the running exactly like so how do you, i can't do that because i'm i can't give that to them yeah. without it jeopardizing their safety so it's like yeah, yeah i know from sad. yeah from my coaches at least um we we were all at mercesburg we were able to like kind of stay in a little bubble so it was a bit easier um we couldn't play any games but they they tried their best to keep us together keep us able to play practice play blue white games we've divided and played versus each other so everyone's really just trying the best they can as now yeah. um, well and that's what i found that like before we went into full lockdown i could get the team together and train yeah. they were having as much fun as they did during the season like no one really missed the races it was like the long runs through the woods uh, go to the swimming hole go do hills on the beach you know loved it but then when we got when COVID started surging again. I had to put the put the end to that, mm -hmm. and I just got sort of these kind of whimpery. Can we start again? And I'm like, yeah. I can't really take that risk, you know. Like it's it's too much. Um, so yeah, it made me sad. I hate to say no to 
kids too. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's the, the seniors too. It's hard to to do that for them, but we're all going through it. So at least <laughs> at least we all understand. Well, and at the end of the day, you will have gotten through something that's hard, yeah. you know, unequivocally. I mean, it's been a hard year. Mm-hmm. And if you can do this, there's another challenge you're going to face down the road. You're going to look back. Well, I did COVID. I can do this, you know, like you'll draw strength from it, I hope. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, I guess, yeah, we're running short on time here, so I'll cut out a few questions. But um, I know you you answered this a little bit, but we'll just wrap it up with, do you um, have any final advice for me or students in high school who are just beginning to plan for their future, getting into colleges and sports and just jobs in the future? A lot of a lot of questions there. Um, I guess the one thing I would say is that you have a lot of decisions to make in life, and none of them singularly are as important as you think they are. <laughs> so, like, you know, going to college, like, which schools to apply to? You get you can get kind of wrapped up, and like, this is going to make all the difference, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. You know, you've got lots of chances to change those decisions to make subsequent decisions, it'll soften the impact of that last decision. Um, So, you know, don't get too wrapped up in the stressfulness of the decision-making of the college application process, um, of the college, which one you choose to, what major you're gonna choose, which job to take. Um, But the impactful decisions are how you treat other people. Because, you know, you go and study the wrong major, you can fix that. But if you're unkind to somebody, it's really hard to fix. So be nice, you know? (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. Your advice has really meant a lot. Definitely has. And thank you. Just one perspective, you know? And like, and that's the other thing too, is like, you're going to get a lot of advice over the years and you also have to winnow it, right? Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But one thing I can tell you is like, taking the advice to be nice to somebody or giving the advice, you go wrong, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like, well, no, I decided I'm going to reject that guy's advice and I'm going to be a jerk. Yeah, I can say the college process so far has been a lot. I've been prepping for the ACT and everyone, especially at Mercersburg, it's such a competitive, who can get into the best school, the best Ivy League school. Everyone's Ivy, Ivy, Ivy. And it's like, I'm like, my brother and sister went through it and my parents are trying to tell me like, no matter what school you're at, it it mainly matters what you do there and if it's the right fit for you. So. at the end of the day, it matters what you do there, and it matters what you do after that, and it, what's, it matters who you interact with. And um, like I, I was, I remember that pressure, and I was the valedictorian of my Mercersburg class, and so there was a lot of pressure to like, you got to put up a good Ivy. So I applied to all the Ivies. I got into Harvard, and I'm just like, it, it didn't feel right, you yeah. know. Like I went there, and it's like, it's all about like, I mean, it's the epitome of white privilege, right? Like you are now among the chosen class. Like, this is not a fit for me. Yeah. And there was pressure to take take that and go. And I went to Rice, which is like this blue collar, Texas, you know, like mm-hmm. I, the opposite. And I had a great experience there. Now, I could have made the wrong decision. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like I've had 10,000 other impactful decisions and they all add up. So you have to think about what your values are, make those decisions and resist the pressure. But your focus is to make sure that Ellen goes to a school that's a great fit for Ellen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just need to take all the advice that you get in life and understand that the person who's 
pushing you in one direction or another has a perspective too. Like, you know, you're, I know your dad's your basketball coach, but as a coach, I really want to see my athletes run in college because it says, hey, I was a good coach. Yeah. But they need to do that if it works for them, not because it makes me look like a better coach. Mm-hmm. So like, and you're, obviously your dad would never do that because he loves you in a way that a coach normally wouldn't. But you have to make sure that you understand the other people's motivation. And like I, the college counselors were great. I remember working closely, but they had a different set of objectives than me, you know? So you just make good choices and remember that the adults around you have their own objectives, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, thank you so much.